let it not be said that this podcast is awash in anti-German sentiment, because there you have a German-themed song for our copyright-expired intro music. That song there is 1924's Drinking Song, parentheses, drink, 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 parentheses seem unnecessary there. At any rate, Drinking Song, parentheses, drink, 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 by the Victor Male Chorus. Victor's the record company. They decided, you don't need to know these. It's a bunch of dudes. It's a male chorus. What do you want, a list of names? The largely anonymous Victor Male Chorus singing Drinking Song, drink, 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 right smack dab in the middle of Prohibition. Perhaps an indication that Prohibition wasn't going so great. That a drinking song was rocketing to the top of the charts. I always thought this was funny about Prohibition. This is true. The birth rate in the United States fell a lot during Prohibition. Clearly, most of America woke up one morning in 1920 and went, I'm married to that? That's my spouse? I've been having sex with that this whole time? They looked really different when I was hammered on gin. And now you're telling me gin's illegal? I guess we're done having kids. So they had to let people have booze just for the continuation of the species. The 21st Amendment, which repealed prohibition, started with the sentence, seeing as we are, by and large, a nation of unfuckable trolls, etc., etc. Hello, welcome to the I Might Be Wrong podcast. I'm Jeff Maurer. This is the audio version of my substack, which is called I Might Be Wrong, and which contains... Many articles, not just this one, lots and lots of stuff I write. You can find this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, there's a version on YouTube. You've already found it. Why am I telling you how to find it more? Anyway, thank you for listening. I hope you subscribe, and I hope you share the articles. And if you want to do the version of the subscription where you throw some money my way, that would be great. Today's episode is called Why Everyone Hates the Educated Left. My last episode was Everyone Hates the Educated Left. This is Why Everyone Hates the Educated Left. I felt like in the last episode I described kind of that people hate us. I wanted to get a little bit into maybe why people hate us, and I am considering myself part of the educated left. Uh, Unfortunately for me, I think that's an accurate description. So I want to theorize a little bit about what it is about us that's rubbing a lot of people the wrong way. So the title is, Why Everyone Hates the Educated Left, subtitle, part two of my Democrats, What Are We Doing Here? series. If you're a Democrat, and you came away from the gubernatorial elections in Virginia, in New Jersey, and elections elsewhere, thinking, hey, awesome, no self-reflection is needed, then, as they say where I'm from, God love you. Personally, I am pro-self-reflection pretty much across the board, because at every point in my life, thinking about myself from five years ago makes me mortified to the point of paralysis. The further back I think, the more I want to jump into a volcano. And this process of constant self-reflection and, one hopes, self-improvement is the only remote shot I have at being something less than a total douche rocket before I die. If when I die, they put on my gravestone, not a complete ass wagon, I'm going to count that as a big win. Of course, some Democrats continue to deny 
that anything weird is happening on the left. The line from some liberals after Tuesday's ass-kicking was, hey, we lost because Glenn Youngkin, about to be governor of Virginia, and conservative activists stoked racial animus. This really strikes me as denial in its purest form. It is a doubling down on the how do we get these racist fuckwits to like us attitude that ignores the possibility that maybe our actions might be part of the problem. This, oh, it's just conservative activist talking point is belied by the fact that Yunkin actually did better with black voters than Trump, and Trump outperformed expectations. Now, I don't have a fine-grained analysis of what happened in Virginia. Ultimately, Virginia is whether I'm going to talk about climate here. And the climate is one in which many people on the left refuse to admit that we are playing footsie with a weird elite ideology that most Americans hate. So in the last episode, I talked about how basically everyone hates the highly educated progressive left, which again, I'm considering myself a part. Now, on some level, we all know this. Extreme examples of the far left archetype are viscerally annoying. Remember Pajama Boy from about 2013? Pajama Boy gained brief internet fame when a DNC-linked group tweeted out an image in a horribly misguided attempt to drum up support for Obamacare. And you really do need to see this just to, to feel the impact of this image. Take a second, Google Pajama Boy. If it's not already burned into your brain, it is a twerp. That is literally the only adjective that could be used to describe this dude. A twerp in flannel pajamas and glasses. He's holding a latte. What? It's just a check mark of every conservative stereotype of a liberal. Like, yeah, fancy glasses, latte, one-piece pajamas, so infantilism. What in God's name were they thinking? I'm getting mad just talking about it now. How does, how does a Democratic group do this? Is there any internal quality check? Ugh. Anyway, I'm going to calm down here. Reactions to Pajama Boy, <laughs> as you just witnessed, ranged from he should be put in a one-person rocket and launched into the sun. That was the far right. To he should be fired out of a cannon directly into a hippo's waiting open mouth. That was moderate. To he should be dunked in iodine and dragged by horses through a field of thorny shrubs. That was the, the moderate left. Now me, I'm pretty far left. So I merely wanted to bury this kid up to his neck, slather him with meat drippings, and let seagulls peck at his eyes. I am still stunned that a liberal group, a liberal group, tweeted an image that is the equivalent of a conservative group sending out a picture of a guy with like six teeth and 20 Confederate tattoos holding an XXX job with the caption, don't get vaxxed, that's for the Hebrews. So Pajama Boy is, essentially, the personification of the type of person David Shore. David Shore is a data analyst I talked about in the last episode. The type of person David Shore thinks has too much influence in democratic politics. And my point in the last episode was that Shore is right, but that their influence within formal democratic politics is only part of the story. I think that things people do everywhere, all the time, from entertainment to tweets to person-to-person -person interactions, 
All these things affect the Democratic brand. Sorry to use that buzzword, but it really is the right word. They affect the Democratic brand and that a party's brand affects voting outcomes far more than decisions made by campaigns. So that's the what. But now the why. Why do people hate elite leftism so much? That's what I want to think about today. And I think a good place to start is by admitting that I was, at one point in my life, basically pajama boy. That was me. In my mid-20s, I had a graduate degree, I had lefty politics, and I had thick-rimmed glasses worn mostly for style. My eyesight is not that bad. They are real glasses, but I wore them for show. Now, unfortunately for me, I was, at that time, also beginning my career as a stand-up comic. So I was bringing this deeply hated persona to places where it was even less welcome than normal, such as a beer festival in central Pennsylvania, real gig, a pool hall slash shooting range in rural Virginia, real gig, and a club in Baltimore that had a $20 all-you-can-drink special, the Baltimore Comedy Factory. Unbelievably, that was indeed a real gig. Talk about the opposite of prohibition, by the way. Surely there's a middle ground between no booze and all the booze you can drink for $20. Those Comedy Factory gigs basically made me want to bring back prohibition. At any rate, I was showing up at these gigs with my thick-rimmed, annoying twerp glasses, and I made things hard on myself by deciding, I can't just do jokes, I need to say something. But did I need to say something? I was, after all, mostly doing shows where I had to ask, hey, could you please unplug Big Buck Hunter before I go on? And look, I don't mean to shit on the entire concept of saying something. Often, change only happens when people speak up, so saying something can be good. But I now realize that there is a time and a place for everything, and an ice cream parlor where you have to stop your set every time the loudest jet engine freezer kicks on, another real gig, that might not be the right venue for taking down George W. Bush's views on gays in the military. Of course, as we all know on some level, the impulse to say something comes from two places. The first place is the desire to do the right thing. I try to keep sight of the fact that many of the people I view as nutty and overzealous, they're coming from a good place. And I honestly do believe that. That is especially true of young people who have raging hormones and a three-quarters cooked brain and who will probably one day think back to their youth and wonder why someone didn't chain them to a stake like a fucking werewolf. So that's the first impulse, desire to do the right thing. The second impulse is... Not so noble. The second impulse is political statements can be self-righteous virtue signaling. Now, that's what I was doing in my mid-20s in those stand-up gigs. I was shoehorning political statements into places where they weren't welcome, such as a holiday party for Jiffy Lube employees. Real gig. Oh, God, that one. Boy, I was the wrong guy at the wrong time. But I was doing that because... Smart political guy, that was the identity I'd chosen for myself. And believe me, if any other identity had been available to me, 
I would have leapt at it. If I thought I could have pulled off, you know, laid back hoodie wearing stoner guy or even weird sideburns guy with strong opinions on microbrews, I would have gone for it 100%. Ultimately, my political statements played basically the same role as my thick-rimmed Buddy Holly glasses. They were part of a character I'd created for myself. So I realize now how obnoxious all of that was. The first problem was that it was elitist. My persona existed basically to remind people that I had attended Soft-Handed Dandy University, where I majored in fancy lad studies. The second problem was that it was preachy. People were looking for light comedy, and instead I was giving them a scorched-earth takedown of the war on terror. If my theory is correct, that any action anywhere by anyone on the left in some way affects the Democratic brand, then I might have been single-handedly the reason why there is no public option in Obamacare. And if so, all I can say is, whoops, sorry about that. (laughs) I thought I was doing the right thing. (sighs) Anyway, I think that most people respond to the type of performative politics that I was doing with eye-rolling annoyance. That's how I always reacted to religious fundamentalists. In high school, I knew a lot of people who would chew my ear about how evolution is a myth and being gay is a sin and blah, blah, blah. It was really the mere image of the performative proselytizing that I did in my 20s. And it was presumably done for the same reasons. I remember when I would hear these diatribes from my religious conservative friends, I remember thinking, hey, look, I know that the topic of evolution came up and now you need to do your little intelligent design song and dance because if you don't, then you will feel like a bad person. But why don't you just leave me out of all this? A fundamentalist's one-man holy roller show never came close to convincing me of anything. It never made me want to join their little tribe. In fact, it's probably one of the main reasons I ended up on the left. The nuttier the belief the more annoying the political play-acting surrounding that belief tends to be. One of the reasons that the Democratic brand is turning toxic is that parts of the left are getting into some pretty fucked-up shit. If Michael Moore was weed, then Ibram X. Kendi is heroin. I think John McWhorter spoke for a lot of people when he called Robin D'Angelo's White Fragility, quote, The second worst book ever written, end quote. The worst book, I assume, uh, was probably Mein Kampf 2, Heil Hawaii, which had all the racism of Mein Kampf, plus a really lame plot that they obviously just threw together so they could have a sequel. Anyway, Kendi and D'Angelo, of course, are merely the king and the queen of a vast empire of lefty academic horseshit that is convincing absolutely no one who doesn't already practice their weird religion. Now, it seems to me that parts of the left are trapped in an ideological hothouse whose temperature is rising by the minute. But I'll be honest, I am still sympathetic to the, hey, it's just a few crazies argument, which you do hear all the time. And look, from my perspective, 
It seems like a lot of craziness to me. But how does one measure political craziness? There is always going to be some crackpot state senator who has a bill to give mosquitoes the right to vote. Or some crank teacher out there telling his class that vowels are imperialist, or I guess that would be imperialist. At any rate, it's hard to know if we're experiencing more craziness or less or the same amount. Maybe it's true that Twitter makes it easier to find crazy people, and it does do that. And maybe it's true that right-wing media has made publicizing the crazy lefty cell phone of the day its entire reason for being, and it has done that. Therefore, it might just be the case that normal levels of crazy are getting amplified. Honestly, I'm not really persuaded by that argument, but I do find it difficult to refute. So I'm a little bit agnostic on the question of whether it's more or less. But look, I would happily settle for this understanding. No matter how prevalent craziness might be, let's just announce it wherever it exists, okay? We can't stop someone from saying something dumb. But when they say something dumb, let's make it clear to everybody listening that we don't share that view. Just as Democrats try to tie Republicans to the biggest idiots on their side, Republicans will, of course, try to tie Democrats to the biggest idiots on our side. So when they pull that move, we need to be able to say loudly and clearly for everyone to hear, that crackpot does not speak for me. And this is the thing that, by and large, we are not doing. How do I know this? Because anyone who does do it gets labeled heterodox. Elite academic weirdness is playing roughly the same role on the left that Trump plays on the right. It is broadly unpopular, but cultishly revered by the base. It is a wedge issue. And because so much lefty weirdness is related to race and gender, liberals are afraid to denounce it because we don't want to get called racist or sexist. Politicians, for their part, are trying to say as little about this as possible. And when they do summon the nerve to denounce it, it doesn't always work because it's hard to distance themselves from what's been established as the Democratic brand. And consider what just happened in Virginia. Glenn Youngkin had a ton of success convincing voters that Democrats would promote radicalism in public schools. Without a doubt, the threat was overhyped. The panic over critical race theory, it is a concerted political effort for which conservative activists have been loudly taking credit. I mean, just go to Christopher Rufo's Twitter feed. He is not shy about saying, this is what I'm doing. This is my plan. This is how it's going so far. It is definitely an effort by conservative activists. And the Democratic response, voiced by Terry McAuliffe billions of times, though it ultimately didn't do him any good, was that critical race theory was not being taught in Virginia schools. Now, that was true. But it ignored the fact that much of the left spent the past year and a half promising a racial reckoning and also sometimes defending actual critical race theory and loudly praising cranks, including, but not limited to, Robin DiAngelo and Ibram X. Kendi. During that time, 
crazy things did pop up in public schools, such as the training for New York public school administrators that claimed that elements of, quote, white supremacy culture include perfectionism, objectivity, and worship of the written word. I'm still stunned that that happened. How did everyone who viewed the slide that I just drew that from not instantly go, this is very racist, this is very, very racist. At any rate, that happened. Also, the 1619 Project did develop curriculum teaching that racism was not just a large part of American history, which of course it was, but that racism is actually America's defining feature. There are presently four Robin D'Angelo books on the D.C. Public Schools recommended reading list. Four! Four of them. So that would be, I guess, White Fragility, uh, White Fragility 2, Too Fast, Too Fragile, probably Medea's White Fragility Thanksgiving, and of course, National Lampoon's White Fragility 4, Return to Boner University. Robin D'Angelo's got a diverse catalog. I'll give her that. She's done a lot with the White Fragility title. And the concerns, inflated though they may have been, over critical race theory, were only one part of the story. Virginia parents may have been even more worried about losing AP classes and gifted and talented programs due to equity concerns. Where I live, in New York, Mayor Bill de Blasio made a highly publicized, and probably about to be reversed, but highly publicized decision to phase out the gifted and talented program in public schools because that program was, he thought, too Asian and too white. This, of course, is right out of the Kendi playbook. If results are inequitable, then the program is racist and has to be changed. Two veteran reporters think this fear loomed large in voters' minds. So here's a tweet from Jonathan Martin of the New York Times. He says, Threat of losing, gifted and talented, and AP track, a much more potent issue than CRT for voters who didn't vote Trump last year. Dave Weigel of the Washington Post has a tweet where he links to a story about educational standards and says, Something Youngkin did very well and Dems never responded to effectively is highlighting anything that looked like woke liberals lowering education standards. And anecdotally, I'm from Virginia. I went down there recently. And yeah, every Yunkin ad I saw was either something about education or something about defund the police. He was just hammering it over and over. And I think in the end, we can safely say that too many voters didn't trust Democrats to handle these issues. Left-wing activists painted themselves into a rhetorical corner. They spent 18 months promising a righteous reckoning that would reshape society root and branch, and then they tried to do a heel turn where they would reassure people that, no, actually, they just wanted modest changes. God, why is everyone freaking out about this? The somewhat pedantic response that critical race theory wasn't making its way into schools ignored the fact that occasional bits of radical bullshit were making their way into schools. To many people, the left's CRT argument sounded like, we are not teaching post-funk industrial new metal in schools. We are teaching funk-infused post-punk neo-metal, so will everybody please calm down? Of course, the dynamic I'm describing might not have decided the Virginia race, but it definitely didn't help. As the journalist Nate Cohn pointed out, 
Critical race theory, the actual thing, not the conservative bogeyman, is a critique of liberalism coming from the left. So to the extent that Republicans can tie Democrats to it, it makes Democrats the party of the race-based worldview. This then allows Republicans to claim to be striving for a post-racial world, which is a vision that remains extremely popular. All Republicans need to do to seize the mantle of being the post-racial party is to get people to forget about Donald Trump. And lucky for them, Twitter silenced him. What a lucky fucking break for Republicans there. So, conclusion, why do people hate the educated left? I think some of it's because we can be smug, we can be smirking little pajama boys, and we should always try to work on that. But I think it's mostly because we are seen as practitioners of, or at least sympathetic to, a super weird religion that is a borderline cult. The religion is eschatological because it sees the world as inherently wicked and in need of a cleansing fire, and it's also evangelical because it demands constant proselytizing and public demonstrations of faith. We spend a lot of time engaged in self-righteous posturing and virtue signaling and a lot of time telling non-believers that they are bad, 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 bad. And of course... The religion is ultimately empty. It's usually just an expression of guilt about one's privilege, and it requires no real sacrifice from its highly educated, typically wealthy practitioners. Now, how many people actually fit the description I just laid out? I don't know. This gets back to the how much craziness are we dealing with question. I don't know exactly how prevalent this is. But whatever the numbers, Democrats will not do well if we are seen as having been captured by a cult. Wherever craziness exists, we need to denounce it without reservation. We haven't been doing that. And if we don't start, I think there's going to be more electoral pain ahead. And that's the episode. Like I said, that is part two of my Democrats' What Are We Doing Here series. Part one is called Everyone Hates the Educated Left. And I hope it's clear that the subtext here is always Trump. Trump! I don't talk about Trump much on this podcast in my writing. Look, I wrote for last week tonight for six years. I have talked about Trump plenty. I am done for now, and I might not be allowed to be done in 2022. So for now, I'm going to leave that dude as subtext. Trump, he's out there. Why don't we get our shit together? Let's do it sooner rather than later, please. Anyway, thank you as always for listening. You can find this and so many more articles on my Substack, which is imightberwrong.substack.com. I will be back next week with another episode, so thanks for listening, and bye for now.